As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Right, well, welcome to the Lord's Cricket Podcast. This week, the show is with Angus Fraser. Gus played 46 test matches for England, taking 177 test wickets at an average of 27.32. He took 13 five-wicket hauls in his test career, two of which came here at Lord's. One in 1990 versus India, where he took five for 104. We don't really touch on that in the podcast because that is the game where Graham Gooch scored 333 in the first innings and 123 in the second. So it's kind of best remembered for that. Um, What we do talk about in terms of his Lord's playing days is obviously his time at Middlesex, but also in 1995, the second time when Gus got on the honours board. That was against the West Indies. It was 5 for 66 he took. It was a fantastic test match. Gus took his 100th wicket in it, which was Brian Lara. So he has some lovely memories about that. Um, So without much further ado, this is the Lord's Cricket Podcast with Angus Fraser. Remember, it was a very, very hot, humid day. It was a big storm in the afternoon. Uh, warming and sweater all day, sweating because I didn't want to take it off. Oh, uh, why was that? Just, just got so proud to wear it. Really? Yeah, so just wanted wanted to wear it. You're listening to the Lord's Cricket Podcast with me, Will Rowe. These are the stories from the home of cricket with the people that made them. Well, welcome to this edition of the Lord's Cricket Podcast. And it's at my absolute pleasure to be joined by a man that really is Mr. Lord's in many ways. <laughs> Angus Fraser, how are you doing? I'm very well, yourself? Yes, very good, thank you. Um, Mr. Lord's, uh, Well, I, yeah, in the research, you know, you played for Middlesex, you're a one-county man, one club, you captain Middlesex towards the end of your career, you've been on the MCC committee, obviously you played for England here. Um, you you know this ground maybe better than anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, well, I say working here is a privilege, isn't it? To, I mean, sat here now in the... What's this room? It's the members' lounge, members' the top lounge. of the pavilion, looking over the grey roofs and at the sky. It's uh, yeah, to a thing. Spent the thick end of thirty-five years, mostly thirty-five years working life working here. Is a 
sit home sometimes or sit in my office sometimes feeling sorry for myself but I've been quite lucky haven't I <laughs> um, well, let's, I'm going to open with a question did you enjoy bowling because looking back at some of the tapes um, I think the iconic images of you is kicking the dust in frustration or looking absolutely shattered before you let go of the ball um, running sweating red faced uh, Yes, I did. I loved it. I loved the competing. Um, there's nothing better. I mean, it's, I suppose it's how many times you think it, but when I ran up to bowl, I sort of had a mental image of what that ball was going to look like or yeah. what the end result was. It And it was always sort of hitting the seam, just bouncing a bit, nipping away, taking the edge and being caught at second slip. And sort of having, doing things like that or, or that outcome of coming along every now and then and other outcomes where you've actually done something well and walking off the field having had uh, with a sense of achievement having and it doesn't always reflect itself with a 5 for 40 or something like that it might be 2 for 80 off 37 overs in, in the, on a flat pitch and in the context of everything so yeah getting that competitive spirit or getting that element out of you and also finding something that gives you as much satisfaction is is difficult I think for a lot of players when they leave cricket and I've managed to do that and to some extent because you've had to be absorbed with other jobs that you've, yeah. that you've done and commit to them. Um, but no, I love bowling and I wish I was <laughs> well, fit and 26 again rather than uh, 53 and uh, carrying a bit too much timber. Let's, let's go back to um, your early life. You were born in 1965 um, to Irene and Don Fraser. Um, you were actually born in Lancashire. Yeah, I'm farming a- stock. Yeah. Uh, well, my, well the, the surname is Scottish, so my grandfather was Scottish, and uh, he was in the police force, and he met a Lancashire woman. So my dad moved, or well, my dad was born, so they moved down to Greater Manchester, where my dad was born. And my mum's side of the family is, is farming stock from the side of the East Lancashire Road, right. uh, Ashley Tilsley, Lee, and Billinge was a, a maternity hospital. Uh, it doesn't no longer exist, actually. I think, um, was it Richard Ashcroft from... The verb, he was born there. Oh, right. So <laughs> something like sort of one of those silly little things that people sort of say. Yeah. And we moved south when I was two, so no real recollections with my dad's work uh, and ended up in, in Harrowweald, sort of just outside in the outskirts of London. And my mum, my father passed away sort of six or seven years ago. And my mother's still in the same house that we moved into. So always lived in Harrow when I was moved in with my girlfriend Denise now my wife we've moved to Hatch End and then to Pinner so we've always lived within sort of two or three miles of family home really in Harrow World What was life like growing up in Harrow? Was it sort of normal childhood? Uh, well, you, you, How would you describe yeah, it? Well my dad worked abroad quite a lot yeah, because um, he was a structural engineer and quite a few of the contracts they had were sort of building um, hospitals in Bahrain and Karachi and Pakistan and places like that so he was quite away quite a lot so my mum did a lot of ferrying around so I, and I was, no I'm sport rotten I mean <laughs> it's one of those things where you look back at and I'd imagine a lot of sportsmen could do it and you, I suppose the, the starting point is the Matthew side about all those table tennis players living in one street and the fact that they were all there pushing each other playing against each other they all got better and and, and, and and you look at your, your childhood and the fact that I had a brother rather than a sister so that I had someone to play with. But there were three or four other families with boys in the, within, in the street. Uh, so you used to play in the street then. In those days there wasn't sort of cars sort yeah. of ramp packed. There were grass verges and you could play cricket in the street. 
It's a sporting childhood for Angus Fraser. Not just a talented cricketer, he plays golf, football and rugby too. The young Angus could in fact kick penalties from the halfway line for Harrow Rugby Club. He plays his cricket for Stanmore, a club in north-west London near his home and still has connections there to this day. As a late developer, he spends his youth very much in the shadow of his younger brother, Alistair. I spent most of my childhood very jealous of my brother, really, because he was, in many people's eyes, the Fraser that was going to make it. So we'd, obviously, our families get a name, sort of yeah. a couple of good, good sportsmen in them. And, and Alistair, my brother, was always going to be the, the one that was going to make it. And he was playing for Middlesex at sort of under-13s when he was 11. And always, I mean, he's, he's a fantastic athlete, still is. And sort of bolt fast through the ball miles, and uh, could could whack the ball about. And he was playing for England, young England sides. And I just remember constantly dropping off at hotel and on this latest tour yeah. extravaganza that he was going on. And I was sort of chucked back in the back of the car, driving home, sort of with my parents feeling totally sort of jealous of what he was he was going through. And I only really came through when I was... So I'd taken my O-levels um, yeah. when I was 16, and it was only when I went to Orange Hill from Gayton to do my a year of retakes of my O-levels, and then my A-levels, that I got selected for Middlesex schools. And it all sort of happened very quickly after that. You suddenly sort of started doing things from Middlesex schools, got into Middlesex under-19, sadly I had a stress fracture, or Middlesex young cricketers as they were which meant I missed that summer, then came back the next summer and, and got involved. And you'd made your first-class debut by the time you were 18. And I think I made the... I, my, I got my name, really, through playing in club cricket. So, again, playing in Colts cricket, playing for Stanmore Thirds, getting selected for the, for, the, for the second 11. And I always remember it was August. Uh, we'd just been on a family holiday. It was the end of August one year. And um, it was August one year, and we'd... I played my first team debut for Stanmore at Tring when I was 16 and then played my first league game a couple of weeks later when I was 16 and suddenly started performing as a 16-17 year old in, in, in adult cricket and, and your name got around and all of a sudden Don Bennett who was the Middlesex coach then um, used to, not that you'd ever see him because he was always hiding in the trees or looking around corners <laughs> trying to catch her by surprise I think or to see how you went about your cricket without people watching you uh, and then you go in the bar at the end of the evening and say oh Don Bennett was there wasn't he sort of yeah. been there watching you so your name got around and suddenly started playing for England uh, sorry uh, Middlesex a couple of Middlesex second level games in 83 and got a five for in a was it a Bain Clarkson 55 over game as they were there at, at Lensbury Teddington against Surrey and 1980 sort of signed on a summer contract and, and left school after my levels really and it was 84 that you made your debut for Middlesex mm. it was um, down in Swansea against yeah. Cardiff um, match figures of 1 for 124 but you know that was the big <laughs> that was <laughs> yeah, I mean it was it was tough tough going you, you must have felt going into that game this this isn't going to be so simple it, I suppose in those days it was Sorry, I'm pouring myself a cup of tea. That's all right, you go ahead. Yeah. There wasn't wasn't the sense amongst young people on the staff that it had to happen instantly now, which is, I mean, obviously my position at Middlesex now, and 
and trying to keep young cricketers happy is, is difficult because everybody wants it yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in those days, there was a reality that you're going to have to put a couple of years of work in here to sort of start pushing to get in the Middlesex side, especially when the side that they had then was an outstanding side with uh, sort of Slack and Barlow out in the batting, Gatsett three, Bradley four, Butcher five, Downton, Embry, Edmonds, Cowens, Daniel Williams. I mean, this is a, one of the best sides that Middlesex ever produced, so the only opportunities you were likely to get were because of injury or, or England call-ups. And it was because of that that you sort of, a combination of those that you, you sort of got in quite quickly. So, But you didn't go there thinking, blimey, if I don't get it right this game, I'm not going to get an opportunity. It was every, There was a longer-term yeah. uh, view that was taken. I, got, I think I got a wicket in my third or fourth over, bold Jeff Hopkins, knocked his middle stump out of the ground, it was a good ball, and nipped back on him. This is a piece of cake, and as you said, ended up with one for 120 odd, which uh, a bit of a a reality check, really. And there wasn't just the wickets. I I just remember Winston Davis bowling. He was playing for um, Glamorgan that game, and and standing up or sitting up there on the balcony with my pads on and my thigh guard on, thinking, "How on earth am I going to cope with this fella if I get out there?" But fortunately, I didn't have to bat, and it sort of the match tapered out into a into a draw. I, do, I remember there were a couple of things. I was sharing a room with Richard Ellis, who, who was thirsty, and I remember sort of being in bed at an early hour and being woken up by him and an umpire one evening coming in and, and making a hole in a bottle of scotch, speaking in the bedroom <laughs> while I'm trying to get to sleep on my debut. But yeah, times were a lot different then. In the mid-1970s to the early 1990s, Middlesex enjoyed their most successful period as a club. Mike Brearley's set the ball rolling as captain, and when Angus comes into the side, Mike Gatting's picked up where Brearley left off. In 1985, Middlesex win the county championship, their fifth title in nine years. I ask Angus if he was in awe of the dressing room that he walks into. Not really, because it it was interesting, because I think I'd, I'd been overlooked by Middlesex a little bit in my youth. You get a bit, not sour, but if it's, well, if Surrey came along, I'd have gone and played for Surrey type of thing. I just want to play cricket, and if Middlesex yeah. aren't good. So there was a bit of that attitude. Uh, but, but Surrey were a pretty ordinary side then. Um, but I know Jeff Arnold, who I still know, and probably the best bowling coach that I've worked with, fantastic bowling coach when I was playing. And he'd got me down to a couple of Surrey nets, and I think in those days... Well, it's, it's strange actually because when I first signed for Middlesex, Middlesex had a right to Lancashire because I was born in Lancashire to ask for permission to sign me. Is that right? And that was the way that it worked. I mean, nowadays there's greater freedom and people yeah. aren't tired. Uh, but I think sort of once for sorry to have pilfered me as such would have uh, had to be with Middlesex's blessing, I think, in those days. Whereas now, obviously, the freedom of movement of people to work or whatever is far, far greater. So uh, there's not those sort of rules and regulations in place. But yeah, I, I say I just chuffed to sign Middlesex. Were a huge side. Very, I mean, say in the middle of the most successful period in the club's history. I mean, it was a, a really professional setup. Good cricketers knew their work. They were serious about their cricket, which was, they were there to win games of cricket, uh, and they and they did that. But obviously, over over sort of the next four or five years, from the mid eighties to the late eighties, um, Wayne Daniel retired. Norman Cowan's was still a fine bowler. Uh, Clive Radley sort of went, Graham Barlow went, Wolf Slack sadly passed away. Uh, so there was, a, there was a natural involvement of the side, and the, and the side that again won the championship in 1990 and 93, which I played in, 
uh, that was very much a group coming together. So it's, a, it's a, it had sort of Mike Roseby, who's one of, one of my great mates, uh, Keith Brown, John Carr, Mark Rampakash, Philip Tufnell, um, Richard Johnson was starting to come through then. Um, and, and again, still with Cowens, Williams, Gatting, uh, Embry, uh, those sort of characters. So, and Desmond Haynes is an overseas player who was who was absolutely magnificent. So, uh, but we, we were then very much close. There were lots of barbecues, lots of yeah. wives. We're all sort of at the same age, so getting involved in relationships, having children. Mm. Um, it, it, it sort of really did come together, but it was completely different from what the, the, the team of the mid eighties that I joined. What was Gatting like as a captain? It was hard to believe, actually, now that he was inexperienced. So back in 1984, he just took, I think, really stood down in 82, didn't he? So it was only... 83, yeah. So it was only his second year in charge. But you never sensed that. You always sensed that he was in, <laughs> in charge. I mean, Gat's Gat's Gat. He's a, he's a unique character. And I mean, nothing is sort of unachievable. I mean, I'm surprised yeah. the, the, the Conservatives have not got involved in Brexit because they'd just, <laughs> just get him in a room, bang a few heads together and sort it out. And it'd be the, it, I mean, that's Gat's mentality. And it was, it was very much an open dressing room. And I think, I think maybe we, we went through a period of trying to maintain the same environment. But cultures had changed and, and attitudes and behaviours had changed and it was quite an honest open dressing where people were picked up and if you hadn't performed there were arguments that were quite to the point and yeah uh, and did think, it ever get physical no not, Just, no, no. Yeah. I mean you can imagine Phil Edmonds was always pretty provocative in, in, yeah. in the way he went about things and, and John Embry was never anybody never someone to sort of stand back uh, and not say so I mean Gat and Embers used to argue a lot but it was there in front of everyone. It wasn't behind everybody's backs. It, and it was out. Yeah. You went home at the end of the day's play. You turned up. It's forgotten. And you, you get back to work and you, and you do it. So it wasn't as... People weren't upset. People didn't sort of carry grudges or anything like that. But it was quite a hard dressing room to be brought up in. Um, was it a, a fun time to be a cricketer, that kind of late 80s, early 90s? I remember you telling me, well, there's a group of us, a story, I think we were in Abu Dhabi, about gatting in a swimming pool incident where you were all doing some kind of <laughs> some kind of workout. And then, well, I mean, you tell the story, but was it, was it a fun? It sounded like a fun time to be playing <clears throat> professional sports, playing cricket. Well, that, that, that was gat... <laughs> In his brief sort of dalliance with coaching, and we were sort of pre-season tour in South Africa, and Gat, um, we went to we were trying doing a training session in a swimming pool, so we we're swimming widths of the pool, yeah, and you'd swim a width, and then you do sort of like press ups or back, you know, tricep or bicep sort of on the side of the pool, and we're doing that, boom, 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 and then all of a sudden we've heard this scream, and this body sort of like leapt out like a well, to say it was a salmon, I think he's doing get a bit of a compliment there. <laughs> there may be other animals um, that sort of slipped out and bang on the side and all of a sudden, what's the noise? What's this commotion? And it was Gat and all of a sudden, what's up, Gat? What are my feet? My feet and the sort of blood pumping out of his toes. And he'd been doing these sort of pressed sort of up curls type of things up and down facing the side of the wall and, and both his toenails had got caught in the gaps between the tiles and he'd ripped them off. <laughs> And he was in agony and and sort of him there getting tripped with his blood pumping out of his toes. So it wasn't a pretty sight. So anyway, he had his feet wrapped up <laughs> and he's walking around in this jandal with his cut and bandaged. 
and uh, that night the day did it that night was a team dinner uh, so we weren't uh, sort of had a quieter day the next day and he was supposed to be taking it easy but he was seen at some phone nightclub sort of <laughs> with a few of the players that evening which is probably not the best things to do when you've got these sort of open wounds this sort of wet damp foam nightclub as they used to be then in Johannesburg and next morning I got a phone call Gat saying oh, I can't do training today my toes have sore you take it Gus because I was captain then well thanks a lot mate In 1988, Angus takes 88 first-class wickets that season. He says now that he felt ready at the time to play for England, but that doesn't happen till the next year against Australia in that fateful home series of 1989. Gus makes his debut in the third test at Edgbaston, with England already two down, but he almost made his debut the match before, here at Lord's. I always remember there were like two plastic bags of kit that were in the corner and Mickey Stewart, who was the England coach, um, said that's your kit, Gus, could just check it fit. So you try your shirt on, you try your jumpers on, and you try your cap on and it's sort of, but you can't wear it until you pick for England. So then I had to basically go and train in my Middlesex kit. Right. So there was I training my Middlesex Siemens next door for their sponsors were there because I still see pictures of it every now and then. And... You sort of keep looking at that kit thinking, am I going to get the chance to wear Am I going to get the chance to wear And then I was told that I wasn't playing in the Lord's Test match, so you had to hand your kit back. You think, oh, my God, <laughs> am I ever going to get my hands on it properly type of thing? Uh, so that was handing my kit back to Mickey Stewart, having been left out of this Test match here. England lost the Test match here. And then I sort of got selected again for the third Test match at Edgerston and, uh, and played in it. I can't remember who. I might have played ahead of... It was either Neil Foster or... Paul Jarvis, I can't remember, one of the two was... So I, I went into that, and it was... Again, you get, you look back at the area then, so the year before a test match, and I always remember this, there was a, there was a dinner, and your jacket and tie, so the England team were there with the selectors and a few other people from the ECB, and there was wine on the table, and, and David Gower didn't like the wine, he was captain and captain, so we ordered a bottle of nice wine, and sort of said the waiter came around would you like it I'll have a glass of wine so I had a glass of wine and then they found out that it was like 20 quid a glass it was like a probably 200 quid bottle of wine that Gower had ordered and I said buddy 20 quid 20 or 30 quid for this and then he said oh we're going to have a whip round because the ECB had said because he'd taken the mickey the ECB sort of said you can't order that wine you've got to pay for it yourself type of thing and I've got a good guy. I said, well, it's 30... Anybody who's had a glass, it's 30 quid. 30 quid was quite a bit of money. Yeah. Then. You're only getting sort of 1,700 quid for a test match type of thing. And Mickey Stewart took me on side, Gus, I'll pay for that. Don't worry, Gow's been an idiot. I'll, I'll sort it out. So, But that was the night before the test, so there was a few glasses of wine consumed by... Not that people weren't drunk or anything like yeah. that, but, but it was just... It was, it, was, it was played in that sort of environment. And played the first day... Felt ready to play. My first day was a maiden to Mark Taylor. Remember, it was a very, very hot, humid day. It was a big storm in the afternoon. Uh, warming and sweater all day, sweating because I didn't want to take it off. Why, uh, why was that? Just just got so proud to wear it. Really? Yeah, so just wanted wanted to wear it. <laughs> and yeah, it was a it was a, a bit different. You sort of imagined. I mean, David was a very relaxed captain. Uh, to say the least and you sort of you don't expect sort of church healing speeches and land of hope and glory but you expected 
a bit more sort of you playing for your country for the first time and uh, and it was the bell went and gals come on lads that's the worker we know what we've got to do and off we go type of thing it wasn't there wasn't any sort of big speech as to as to what it's like to represent your country and, and things like that and there was a big ceremony either about me being presented my cap nowadays they always get someone to come in and present a player with his first cap but it was very sort of just matter of fact and it it was a pretty miserable summer. Well, it was a dreadful summer for English cricket, to be honest, because what we used 29 players in six test matches, which really think about this, it was ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it was a six test series. But so the 11 picked in the first test, that leaves 18. So there's three changes a test match. I mean, that's a quarter of your side being changed every test. But I suppose the highlights of it, well, not the highlight, the principal reason for that, well, one of the principal reasons was the South African Rebel Tour being yeah. announced and. For myself, that became apparent really in my second test match, which would have been Old Trafford. And Old Trafford was ridiculous. So the Australians used to get the home dressing rooms because they had a big touring party in England. They had three dressing rooms. There was a captain's room, which the captain was in. Then there was a second level dressing room. And there was another dressing room at the back of the pavilion. There was an overflow. So England was sort of sort of sparsely spread around this floor, around the showers and, and everywhere at Old Trafford. And... I was at the back dressing room and in that back dressing room was where all the dealings were going on are you going to South Africa because John Embry was quite involved in, in, in that and to sort of I mean Neil Foster I think played in that and he was in tears because he'd, he'd signed up and he knew that this was going to be his luck well he actually he might have come back and played for it again actually I don't know but to sort of it's this biggest moment in your career sort of to play for England and, and what it means to you to suddenly see people saying no I've had enough of this so I'd rather go and earn some extra money playing on a rebel tour in South Africa it was sort of, sort of disillusioned you really I mean mm. sort of it was I mean it was it was, it was a dreadful summer in the way that we lost against all expectations um, the, the undercurrent of the, the rebel tour to South Africa and 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 everything that went on but I suppose having come through that it was then a really enjoyable period uh, Graham Gooch took charge as captain Mickey Stewart was a fantastic coach I love Mickey Stewart absolutely brilliant man and a young England side suddenly yeah. moving forward so out of this sort of dark period mm. became a little period of hope and we went to the West Indies that winter um, and performed well I mean everybody expecting a, a blackwash and other blackwashes they were being called yeah uh, we won a, we won the first test in Jamaica the second test match in Ghana was rained off I think and then the third test match in Trinidad we were on top and some sort of slightly sp- speculative sort of antics by Desmond Haynes who was the West Indies captain in that game time wasting prevented us winning the second test so we're going tunnel up and then the West Indies came back and, and beat us narrowly at Barbados and then thumped us in Antigua. So to come out of that tour only losing 2-1 and having put in some pretty good performances was a really encouraging sign, actually. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, 
Also, small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. During his career, Angus shines in the Caribbean sun. Twice he takes eight wickets in an innings away to the West Indies. The first comes at the Kensington Oval in Bridgetown, Barbados in the winter of 1994. Eight for 75 in the first innings and Alex Stewart hits a century in both innings as England win that memorable test by 208 runs. We'll hear in a moment who wasn't impressed with his eight-wicket haul, but before that, was this Angus's favourite moment in an England shirt? I think if I look back at my career, all right, we lost a series. I mean, the last test of that series was the one where Laura got 375, so it was a 3-1 defeat. But that's probably the greatest game of cricket that I had the fortune, good fortune of playing in because it was the Barmy Army starting to get going, lots of England supporters, Kensington Noble Barbados is just a fantastic ground. All right, you compare the facilities to, to those that are now at a lot of stadium and they were pretty awful. Yeah. Uh, but talking about a ground with an atmosphere, with a sort of, with characteristic... And it's West got history Indian, as well, yeah, hasn't it? Huge you know, history and yeah. a small ground, sort of intense, yeah. um, sort of quite intimidating, and, and full houses as well. So maybe a ground only holds fifteen thousand people, but there were probably seven or eight or nine, eight thousand England supporters there, and the locals, and it was a, a, a just a, a, a fantastic week where sort of cricket is celebrated, and that's why I, I, you go to Australia, you travel business class, you're staying in wonderful hotels, the practice facilities are great. There's nothing you want for. In the evenings, you can go out, you can go to nice restaurants, you can drink fine white or whatever you want to do. 
everything away from the cricket is but the cricket's hard it's not much fun I mean when the media get hold of you and they're trying to belittle you and, and just make you feel small and totally inept it's a hard place to play yeah and South Africa was quite similar in, in some ways although not quite the, the facility but the West Indies was cricket almost as it should be played it was raw the facilities were raw but the England coming to, to an island was their big sporting week of the year and it was a celebration of cricket, even though the sort of the cricket they played was pretty ruthless at times. Uh, but f- that, and that's why I suppose that combined with the fact that I had, did have success in the Caribbean is why I always look back at those tours with the greatest fondness. Even though you take that eight for seventy-five, um, you're still criticised by the chairman of selectors, N. Railingworth. You know, he <laughs> he said at the time that you know you weren't fit enough um, to play Test cricket. It's a weird relationship that you have with Railingworth. He seemed to almost have it in for you. Did you feel victimised at all by him? Uh, victimised might be a strong word, but certainly I suppose every people have their idea of... I, I think some of the, the, the Illingworth... I mean, Ian Atherton didn't particularly get on. I mean, yeah. I mean, no one can dispute that Railingworth had a great cricket brain and, and, and achieved a huge amount in his career and and quite rightly was highly regarded. I think that his involvement with the English side came too late, um, to some extent. I think it it sort of gone past him, really, as, as a, this guru-type figure. But he had his ideas. Others, Mike Allerton, who's a good mate of mine, was as, is as stubborn as they come, and obviously he's had a fantastic post-cricket career in, in the media. And others didn't pick me because I was his mate, he picked me because I thought I was a good bowler, but anyway, I think felt others was looking after me, and he sort of saw other bowlers, and therefore, whenever I didn't perform, it I was question marked and things like that. So, yeah, for him to question your fitness, I mean, all right, I don't never pretended to sort of walk around like some sort of cut Adonis, uh, but I, how can you question someone's fitness and they're bowling seven or eight hundred overs a year in county cricket and, and performing? So. Yeah, I did, did get a bit personal at times in some of the things that he said, and maybe my my react my reaction is not one to sort of just <laughs> let it brush over. So I, I yeah, I, I sort of said a couple of things as well, which maybe didn't didn't help. But I think I got done. Well, Norrie, David Norrie used to write for the News of the World, so I was. I mean, again, I was. So that was ninety three, ninety four, ninety four, ninety five. That would have been an Ashes tour, wasn't it? It was ninety four, ninety four, ninety five was. Was the Ashes, and I got left out of that tour, and I only found out on Sky. I was sort of watching Sky, and it's one of those moments where you're trying to do your alphabet, and you think, right, went from afraid they went to golf, and you thought, where's F? Where's F? And by the time they got to McCaig, yeah. I realised I wasn't going, and I was pretty cut up about that. All right, you, one being left out, but two finding out in that manner, and Norrie, David Norrie. <laughs> who I knew quite well sort of phoned me up and said do you want to do a, a, can we do a piece for you in the news of the world and they, they they paid me for it so I'm not sort of trying to pretend he sort of he was quite good because he said I will pay you for it just to sort of soften the blow of not being selected and I was sort of talking about my finding out and I said it's it's one it's easy to phone someone up after the event uh, but it takes um, oh, what was that 
not bald. I'm trying to think of the language it, it takes. Well, it was guts because yeah, they use gut. the headlines yeah. gutless. Uh, yeah, Fraser calls right. England gutless right. or something it, like that's that. That's right. So it takes a bit of guts to phone them up uh, and break yeah. the news. It's easy to phone up after the event, but it takes a bit of guts to phone up and. Yeah. Uh, so the headline was ending with your gutless. And, <laughs> and, uh, that probably didn't <laughs> that didn't help our relationship after that, and that was quite early on. So. Um, yeah, I, I. Did you ever speak to him post your playing career, or was it? Did it just? Did you just kind of leave it? Was there any kind of atonement or kind of conversation? No, he was. I mean, he was always quite nice. I mean, I just wasn't his type of cricketer. I don't. I mean, it might have. I mean, it might. Have, so the Atherton angle might have been slightly there, but he obviously I wasn't. I mean, he. Yeah, obviously golf coming through. There was Craig White. Um, Martin McKay, Joe Benjamin there were sort of a number of bowlers I don't know why but um, perhaps perhaps because I didn't sort of worship the ground he trod on at times but and, and you look and it's you sit back now and you're very proud of what you achieved in England cricket it'd be nice to have done a little bit more you think I could quite easily have, without my injury with a bit more consistent selection played another 25 tests and working at four tests a game which is what I got another 100 wickets and if I'd have taken sort of high 200 test wickets at 27 apiece I think that's as good as I probably was um, or something as, as much as I was capable of achieving still 180 tests 177 test wickets is nothing to be ashamed of by any means but you'd always sort of think it'd be nice to be a bit higher up that all-time England list because I think I was I snucked into sneaked into the top 10 for a while <laughs> uh, but then all of a sudden you sort of Caddick, Goff Flintoff Harmison Hoggard uh, Swan they've all gone past me so I don't, I don't know where I am now <laughs> once I went past 12 I thought oh, you're, you're a bit further down but I mean I did actually do a little bit of research on your on those stats and what I did find that since the Second World War um, you're England's third leading wicket taker of any players who have played 50 tests or fewer. So if you go below that 50 test mark, you're basically third on the list um, post-war. So you've got John Snow, 49 tests, 202 wickets at 26. Jim Laker, 46 tests, at 190, 193 wickets at 21. And then yourself next, also 46 tests, 177. So, you know, I, if you look at it that way, if you take it, um, anyone that's played fewer than 50 tests, that selection, injuries or whatever, you're, you're, you're right up there. I, yeah, and I, I swear, I'm not... So essentially done. I feel uncomfortable talking about yourself and sort of what you achieved. It's, you almost think it's more for other people to talk about than, than yourself, but... I, I take I say it's my fifers so 13 fifers in 46 yeah. tests so you're getting a five for every three and a half test matches um, that's better than m- most so you're, you're actually putting in potential match winning performances quite regularly uh, which is something and your average I think only Jimmy Anderson probably sneaked, he sneaked under me since I retired I think Tremnit might have got there he might be around about that but so there, there, no, there are a lot of things there's enough there to say you could bowl a bit, but that's how you don't want to go around telling people. It's for other people to talk about you rather than yourself. Well, today we're definitely talking about it, Gus. <laughs> um, let's talk about one of those fifers. It is the Lord's Cricket Podcast. Um, I want to talk about the one in 1995. You've twice got on the honours board here. Mm. 
Once against the West, uh, sorry, once against India in 1990, that was your first test, but that was kind of overshadowed by Graham Gooch scoring a triple hundred. <laughs> um, that was and a hundred in the second innings. And a hundred in the second innings. But let's talk about 95. That was England versus the West Indies. It was here at Lords. Um, what was it like as a as a Middlesex player and an England player coming to this great ground? Well, again, you look back at that, and I dropped for the first test um, by Mr. Illingworth. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I left out of that. And again, I, I, why I don't know why, but when, when I was perceived to have been in, there had been an injustice, either it was me rising to the occasion or good fortune sort of shining my way, I sort of came back and produced something. So I'd been left out of the first test match. England lost that. Um, but uh, playing at Lords is, is just special. I mean, uh, so you just have to, although the dressing rooms are being redone, aren't they? So it's not <laughs> going to be honours boards anymore, but honours walls or or what it's going to be. But to sort of, you realise how, how big a thing it is for, for everybody. And I think that it's, it's the same for yourself. It's not something that you ever take for granted. And right, I arrived there having had my name on there once, but... Uh, you, you just want to be up there as much as you can because you can see the, the way that other people performed and playing here is special in a way because of the, it's different it's got a different feel to it it's not as sort of raucous and parochial as, as some grounds it's a more sort of Lord's sort of murmur isn't there sort of people conversing and and sort of spending quality time with each other rather than let's get a bit over exuberant with the alcohol as the day goes on but I mean playing in that game I it, I, I say it was so it's 95 Ashes series 94-95 uh, I played in the last test at, at Perth and I was on 99 test wicket so I took my 100th test wicket here and it happened to be Brian Lara actually so it was a pretty good scalp um, that was the first of your five yeah, in that so LBW I don't think it probably survived DRS <laughs> <laughs> but it was a good appeal it was just after lunch so we caught him by surprise I think Venka was a umpire but it's yeah so to get that and, to, and I remember Goff took a good catch at my neck I think it was Mike Keith Arthurton who yeah it was, it was that was your the final wicket of your five so you mm. Lara LBW Fraser for six, then Richie Richardson caught behind Stewart uh, for 49, Jimmy Adams LBW, um, Kirtley Ambrose caught ramps, bowled <laughs> Fraser, and then yeah, Keith Arthurton, who was batting well actually, um, managed to give the West Indies, I think, a slender lead, and um, yeah, caught by Goff for 75. So that was that was your five wicket haul, and the Dazzler doing a bit of acrobatics down <laughs> yeah. there in front of the. Well, uh, was where he took it, he sort of ran back and took the catch over his head and then <laughs> sort of fell back and banged his head on the turf. But he almost had a look at the camera to make sure they'd noticed it before he got up, type of thing. Never, always, always aware where the cameras were, Goffy. I know, you look back, I have to say, again, looking back at other rings, you, I, I performed in the first innings of test matches, and I always remember sort of Andy Caddick tended to perform more in second innings of test matches and I sat down with Caddick talking and sort of I said yeah he does too much in the first innings he don't find the edge so that was Caddick's reason why in the second innings he doesn't do as much because ball's not singing around as much so the edge it rather miss it so that was Caddick's modest, modest. So, but the fact is you, I've got a lot of first innings fifers as well so you sort of in many ways playing a, a role in directing where the game is and 
Obviously, the, that, that performance was slightly overshadowed by Dominic Cork, who got seven for in the second innings, didn't he? He did, yeah. Uh, on his on his debut, but that was a fantastic game of cricket to win. Um, I remember. Uh, no, I won't go into that story. I, I remember there was a streaker, but so I, I won't go into that one <laughs> uh, when I went out to bat. But the other the other thing was, and it, and it showed the environment that you played in then. So England won the Test match. I think I had one beer in the dressing room before there was a coach waiting for me at the Grace Gate because Middlesex had a NatWest game the following day uh, down in Cornwall. And so pack your bags, get your kit in the back of the bus, all the blokes, where are you? Just come on. You know, so it's sort of like six six hour drive coach journey down to Cornwall. Um, no rest for the wicked. Got in the bedroom, bed wasn't big enough. Um, so I just basically I dismantled the bed chucked the mattress on the floor slept on the floor turned up to the game it was a red hot day uh, bowled three overs because it was one of those games where Middlesex were obviously going to win it quite early on in the game so we no point you bowling anymore um, so that that was my another six hour coach journey back and you think what was that what is that the way you look after yeah you know, sort of someone that sort of 24 hours earlier was was winning a test match in front of 30,000 people oh, well in a, in a fantastic sort of winning a fantastic test match against the West End is in front of 25,000, 30,000 people here. It was a great test. It was a great series what as well. What did we win by, actually? Uh, they won by 72 runs. Mm. So, yeah, ended up, you know, pitch invasion, sort of old-fashioned pitch invasion. I miss, I miss invasions. them. I, miss them. <laughs> I, I, I know the reasons why they're not done. Uh, because of player safety and spectator safety. And, and that, that was a, they were fantastic sights, that. You really felt close to close to things but you can understand why it doesn't take place now but it it's taken a little bit a little bit away I think, again for spectators to get on the outfield at the end of the game and to sort of get a closer inspection of what's taking place in the middle makes them feel much more part of what's happened absolutely and there's always that there's a kind of Excitement because as the players, you kind of have to leg it off the pitch, but, and, <laughs> and the fans are trying to sort of grab you. So there's this. Well, I, I don't know. It's, um, it's yeah. I've, I've watched quite a few back, and when I was a the kid, can, when can I was a teenager, I went to. You know, I was part of some of those. So yeah, it was. It was good fun. It, it, yeah, I suppose. I mean, players are scrambling for stumps or yeah. souvenir. I mean, I suppose nowadays, a spectator nicks one of those stump cameras. They're <laughs> worth a few thousand quid. They are, but so they stumps, bales. Um, caps as well you've got to take your cap off because that's a good souvenir for someone so you, you become very aware that someone's going to could, could try and thieve something off you if you're, as you're running off the field which is probably not ideal but equally there is a an exhilaration to that that you, you, you probably don't quite get now in 1998, one of Angus's good friends resigns the England captaincy. Until Alistair Cook in recent years, Mike Atherton was England's longest-serving captain with 54 games in charge. But in Antigua, at the end of a fraught series in the West Indies, others calls it a day. Naturally, an emotional moment for Angus and his teammates. Well, except Phil Tufnell. It ended on a... On a disappointing England sort of collapsed didn't we lost seven or eight wickets in the, in the last session having to lose a game that we should have drawn and Tuffers was the last man out and I think he got gloved one off Walsh to short leg or something like that it wasn't particularly in line with the ball and all Tuffers was worried about was did he look scared or was he backing away and these sort of things and so we sat there and and, and 
in the sort of quite a sort of rectangular dressing room, and others is in the middle, and I'm sort of sat here. And I think Mark Rambrakash was to my left, and Tuffers was obviously the last man. He was sort of almost slightly behind others, so others couldn't see him, and others were sort of speaking to the team about uh, the fact that he was thanks for his support, but I'm, I'm standing down. And all Tuffers was gesticulating to, to Rambrakash about was sort of almost like, was I backing away? And it's like the, the moment's completely lost in him that the fact that you know, sort of a, a modern great of English cricket, Mike Allerton, is standing down as captain, all tough as he's worried about is did it look back on, did his dismissal look bad on TV <laughs> type of thing? And there was quite a few tears shed actually. Um, it, was, it was really sad because oh, he might not agree with everything others did and that, every, every time, and at times he, he's, he's probably. You know, and other people, he's a stubborn big head bugger. Uh, but love him dearly, and no one could ever sort of say that he, he didn't have the best interests of English cricket. Paid for a lot of discomfort uh, with his back, as tough as tough as so and so, and as you're going to come across. So, yeah, it was a really, really sort of end of an era, really, wasn't it? You mentioned the tears there. Um, you are sometimes perceived as, well, quite a tough, um, at times grumpy person. Mm. But you, you've also shed a few, few tears throughout oh. your career. Are you, are you are you emotional in terms of? Yeah, yeah. I don't. I, I am because you care about what you do. You care about Middlesex. You care about England. You care about the people that are there, and you want to see them do well. You want you don't want to see them suffer and have a miserable time. And you take when things don't go well, you take it personally, and you feel responsible for it. And so, yeah, you quietly. I mean. It's, it's interesting the number of times people sort of say you sort of share the dressing room the number of times you come in you've got a head and tail and dressing rooms are emotional places and, and it, it's you're desperate to do well you want to do well you try so hard you commit a lot not just physically I mean alright you're getting paid during your career so don't, I'm not looking for any sympathy or anything like that but you, you commit a huge amount to to what you're trying to do and when it's not going right it hurts and you you despair it really do despair it especially when you feel that you're bowling well you're doing things and nothing's going your way and when is my next wicket coming from and and you don't begrudge other teammates but you see other people cross away look at him he's got two bloody wickets spawny wickets LBW is never out and and all we're doing is playing and missing. You've had decisions turned down, catches dropped, edges through third man. And it's like, oh my god! And you sit there with your, your, your towel over your head, having, shedding, having a quiet little moment to yourself, type of thing. So, as a player, you did that. And again, winning is hugely satisfying. Um, and you, you want to repeat that as 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 often as you can. And the same with Middlesex I mean we've had three I've had four sort of com- completely contrasting years so you finish second one year you win the championship the next, which is a special moment we get relegated and we've we've underperformed last year uh, as a club and it's not you don't enjoy it you don't enjoy it I don't enjoy it and you don't want to. You don't want to be sit there, going through the emotions, sort of waiting at that. Say playing a game at Lords, so you wait at the visitors' dressing room and shake their hands and say, "Well done." You want them saying, "Well done" to you. 
Indeed. The um, when when you became a journalist, I was reading that sort of ended effectively your Middlesex mm. career there and then. And again, that was I was quite surprised by this. It was tough for you. You you know you I think you sat in a car and you, you broke into <laughs> yeah, tears because twi- it was that was tough. It was because no nothing else. Um, been hugely fortunate to have a sort of eighteen nineteen year career. And that winter, you you realise England's gone, so that sort of ended in '99, really, and England started on a new journey, which with Duncan Fletcher and, and Nasser Hussain, which are perfectly tired. Well, maybe I could have played '99, but did you know your England career was over then? No, because you never give it up, do you? You always think you're going to be good enough. You always <laughs> think you can still do a job. And I think in '99, in that New Zealand series, I probably could have done the job. I, I mean, again, my England came, career came to an end. It, that's an interesting one. I was Middlesex were playing. Um, or my last contact with England. England Middlesex were playing Somerset down in Taunton uh, and so the test matches here at Lords and I got a phone call from David Graveney on the Wednesday night so the game starts on the Thursday on the Wednesday night saying Gus could you get back to Lords um, one of the players is ill I can't remember who it was and would like you to be there as cover um, because the nature of the pitch means that you may well play the next day so could you get back and I couldn't get back one two reasons he found me up sort of 7.30 at night one I had a couple of pints so I couldn't drive and two my kit was locked in the dressing room at Taunton so I couldn't get in there the ground was locked up at the end of a day's play so I got up at the crack of dawn the next morning went to the ground got my kit out put it in the car and drove back to Lords on the sort of M5, M4 I got the Hogarth roundabout and uh, mobile phone run and it was David Graveney saying, it's all right, Gus, he's, fit. He's, he's woken up feeling a lot better, you can turn around. So it was, it was almost just as I got the Hogarth roundabout where the Fuller's Brewery is on the A4. Yeah. Uh, and just went straight around the roundabout and went all the way back to Taunton <laughs> to, to carry on playing for Middlesex that morning. I got one for 100, Trescothic got 100 against us, played well, which was one of the first times. I gave him a bit of a volley and obviously inspired him that day. But And that was the last contact I had with England in, in 1999. And... You never feel it's going to go, but you've. you've and I suppose to many extent, the sort of Middlesex captaincy that came along for a year or so after that was, was, you want to get your teeth stuck into something, and we'd had a couple. Of, we'd having a few difficult years. Do you stay? Do you go? Do you find some fresh motivation? No, you stay and you help out, and and sort of doing the captaincy was one thing, and and hopefully sort of starting a little bit of a period where, although I mean I, I retired. The winter, 2001-2, I'd spent with the media, sort of commentating with Test Match Special, yeah. writing for The Guardian, it was it was then. Uh, I used to write my own stuff rather than have it ghostwritten, which Shieldberry sort of advised me to do when I was I had a sort of column in the Sunday Telegraph. So word had got around that you wrote your own pieces as well as sort of had your own views, which were, didn't hold, but not that you were sort of deliberately contentious, but you obviously was, it, was of enough interest. And got back from being away with Test Match Special f- and in for Middlesex pre-season so I got a phone call out of the blue from the independent sports editor Paul Newman could I meet you for a bit of lunch yes we met then could uh, Simon Kellner and I meet you and they offered me the job for a bit of lunch and came back here as you say and what am I going to do I'm 35, 36 I love cricket I've been in cricket 
means I've cut my year career maybe a year or so shorter with Middlesex than it could be, but it gives me an opportunity to, 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 to do something and still be involved in the sport. And it was a simple decision, but the fact that... And I spoke to a couple of people, Alan Moss at Middlesex, who's a really good man, and Don Bennett, who was no longer a coach, and they both said, look, you've got to look after yourself and, uh, and go. So that made it easier. Not easier, but sort of confirmed to me that the decision I was making was the right one. But to say goodbye to a playing career is... It's hard. It's hard because, as I said at the start, you miss the competing, you miss the... It's easy to, you, it was easy to judge what a good day, what a successful day in your life looked like, even mm. by wickets, by runs, by some contribution you made to the team. But writing an 800-word piece, I didn't know whether that was good or not. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know whether my commentary had been good or not. You just sit there and did it. But, uh, um, yeah, but it was, it was the right thing to do. It's clear, and he, brought, and, it, and he never gives me credit for it. But I mean, as a captain, I named Strauss as my vice captain. It sort of launched, passing of the guards. Yeah, it launched Strauss. Into, <laughs> I'd love to say it was my sort of um, generosity in retiring to allow Strauss, Strauss to sort of sort of follow his natural course. Which was the reason it wasn't? It was I had an opportunity, and, and, and Strauss became Middlesex captain, and the rest is history for him. That's for sure. Absolutely. Um, sitting here now, just to finish on it, it's clear that I mean you, you had a fantastic career. You, you're very proud of it. Um, you sort of alluded to the fact that you do miss it. Um, what, what, what do you sort of take away from your career now, at the age of the grand old age of fifty three, as you said earlier? <laughs> How lucky I was that to, to sort of be a. 12-year-old boy playing in the streets in Harrowweald with my brother and three or four other boys of a similar age and to, through cricket, well, to have had the chance to play here and, and travel the world and have the life that you've had involved in this sport. And I think how fortunate... I don't, I don't appreciate that as much as I should do. I, again, Middlesex had a couple of difficult years and you start feeling sorry for yourself and how much longer do you want to keep putting yourself through it, but... Yeah, it's, it's it's. I don't know what other sports are like, but there's not many nasty people in cricket. There's a lot of good people who care passionately about the game, want the right thing for the game. Yes, they have different views, and um, but it's it's a it's a good sport, and it's a fantastic game. And I think privileged to have played it for the last, or to have been involved professionally in it for, for 35 years, and and to still be, or to be sat here now with you. Uh, chatting about this but with my office where I work just yeah. being probably 30 yards away as the, as the crow flies and to, to drive through the grace gates and park my car in number 6 to walk through the long room when you want it's um, yeah nice <laughs> and just to finish on uh, we obviously we don't know what the future holds but 2016 was obviously an extremely mm. special year for you as managing director of cricket to watch Middlesex win the first county title they'd won since 1993. In, the, in recent years, that must be your proudest moment. I do, and I think I look back on that with greater satisfaction than, than my, my personal achievements as a player. I think as a player, yes, you want to be... You get a huge amount of joy from playing in a team and, and enjoying that, the, the, those moments as a team but it's quite a selfish existence you 
So, certainly during the 90s, maybe with the selection policies that were in place, you, you had to look after yourself. And it was probably one of the reasons why the England side that I played for underachieved, really. I mean, everybody thought there were one or two test matches from being dropped because there seemed to be a, a bit of a randomness about selection then. And it bred a, a slightly selfish individual that, that looked after himself. And whilst you sort of walked a game sometimes having achieved something, it wasn't sort of the icing on the cake wasn't there, which was a, which was a win. But... So, yeah, the, the afternoon at Lord's back in September 2016 is, means more to me probably than anything I achieved as a player, just to try and to get a group of uh, people together or to play a role in getting a group of people together to achieve something like that, and in such a sensational manner. I mean, uh, a lot of people here at Lord's, wonderful scenes at the end. Um, it, it couldn't have been better when Middlesex do things. They don't do it for half measures, that's for sure. They, they tend to do it in quite dramatic style, whether it's going up, going down or, or anything. Here's Roland Jones from the pavilion end. 178 for nine. We're in the 36th over of this Yorkshire innings. 4.5 overs to go. Roland Jones, he's right arm over the wicket. Bowling to Ryan's side bottom. And he's bowled in leg stumps out of the ground. That's it, Middlesex have won the title. The 23-year wait is over. Side bottom goes first ball. Roland Jones has two in two. And Middlesex have finally claimed the crown once more. Middlesex win the pennant. And Yorkshire, the defending champions, their hat-trick chase over. Roland Jones disappears down below the Warner stands in a heap underneath the Compton. Wow, absolutely amazing from Middlesex. Amazing scenes. 4.4 overs remaining of the season. Brooks at the other end. They can't believe it, Yorkshire. 178 all out. But Middlesex have won the county championship once again for the first time in 23 years. The, the, the joy that that sort of gave a lot of people. Um, I met the bloke, actually. There's a famous sort of image of a man in the top I mean the pavilion was packed and a sort of man on the top tier sort of in tears when Middlesex won it and met him this summer actually and, and gave him um, one of the prints that we had done uh, by Jack Russell for the uh, for the, to sort of commemorate the, the achievement and to sort of see that it, it meant that much to a lot of people is, is, is really satisfying and Need to do it again now. <laughs> <laughs> it never ends, never ends, never ends. You sort of, I suppose, it's the thing about, I don't think sports are really different to other people, but people will say, oh, sports are the far more kind of, but you sort of achieve one thing, right, we've done that, got to do it again now. <laughs> and sort of the desire to, to succeed doesn't wane, it really, it doesn't wane. Still got it. Well, um, well, thank you very much for your time pleasure. today. It's been an absolute pleasure going down memory lane and finishing on the more modern era. So thank you very much. Natural so. You've been listening to the Lord's Cricket Podcast, the stories from the home of cricket with the people that made them. That was the Angus Fraser story and that five for 66 against the West Indies. It was great sitting down with Gus there. Um, many people sort of know him as Grumpy Gus. I, I think Gus is actually a hilarious character, really, and has a really good sense of humour. He plays that kind of downbeat um, sort of character well, but he's also... There's a, there's, a, there's a real soft side to him. You know, he used to run in and bowl and give people an absolute volley and, you know, kick the dust away. And You know, he was one of those bowlers that it almost, you know, he, he'll openly admit it, you know, 
not conceding runs for him was almost as important as taking wickets. But there's, there is that soft side to him. There's that emotional side to him. And he, and he talked about that. And actually, towards the end of the podcast, he was quite emotional. There was almost a tear in his eye as I sat down with him in the members' lounge um, here at Lords, And and he looked back at his career and with an immense sense of pride, I think, and also humility. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope you enjoyed that. I, I certainly did. A big thanks to Angus for, for taking his time uh, to record the podcast. Um, thanks again for listening. Please do get in touch with the show via Twitter, at Homer Cricket, or me personally, I'm on at WillRow2. That's my Twitter handle. Any feedbacks, welcome. Nice stuff, preferably. Uh, thank you. Uh, you can also email the show, podcast at mcc.org.uk. And also, please give us a rating and a review on iTunes or whatever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe make sure you subscribe um next week's guest is bob willis uh these days bob plays the part of an almost pantomime villain in his assessment of england on sky's cricket the debate program but he was once england's premier fast bowler 325 wickets in 90 tests bob is probably most famous for that eight for 43 to win the 1981 headingley test and the Ashes, but he also performed brilliantly at Lords. We discuss all that and his childhood memories of being a grumpy teenager, growing up in suburban Surrey, playing in Australia, captain in England, and getting in the zone here at Lords, and so much more. It's um, it's a great sit down there with Bob. So that's next week's Lords Cricket Podcast with Bob Willis. <laughs>